planning on this game actually began before Dragon Quest came out. Pretty normal, you know, you don't know if it's going to be a big success, but you presume it's going to be successful enough to allow you to keep going, right? This is actually something that's kind of problematic in game design and has been for about 30 years now. Uh, there's a term for it, I forget the exact thing, but it's, it's always grab for the next vine. You know, if at any point you're not grabbing for the next vine, aka constantly having another project ready to go, well then you fall and... <clears throat> now, <clears throat> this was uh, Koichi Sujiyama, of course, Yuji Hori. Uh, Akira Toriyama, all were on board for continuing. And I didn't mention him last time, but Koichi Nakamura, who gets a decent amount of praise, or I, I guess recognition this time around, for being the principal programmer for this one. Now, this game is larger in pretty much every way than the first game, and that was their overall approach. This was actually very common, especially back in the 80s, when it came to sequels. The sequel is the original, but bigger. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, to be clear, but... This exact mentality is why Return of the Jedi is Star Wars 2, not Empire Strikes Back, to use a movie comparison. So, they wanted to go with that same kind of approach. Okay, bigger. So, they allowed you to have a party. They figured out the programming uh, requirements to have that, so you would actually have a party. And they changed up who could do what, making this the only mainline Dragon Quest game, where the main character isn't actually the, you know, the, the melee who is good at tanking and good at healing and everything. In fact, the main character, the original character, is just a straight-up melee guy. Although he's pretty good at that, and he can equip all the gear, so that helps. And then we have the secondary dude, Mr. Canock, who, um... The names, you can rename them. I named him Swerby. But, so I keep... I actually just about said Swerby right there, and people are going to be like, who the heck is Swerby? The Prince of Canock, who is... Uh, terrible. I'll talk about that in a second. And then we have the princess, who is awesome. She is the mage. She has all of the, the mage spells you would expect the main character to have, plus a few extras, like she gets kaboom and stuff like that. And Hocus Pocus, which I didn't feel brave enough to try. The game starts out, uh, interestingly. Actually, before I cut into that, I mentioned that they wanted to go bigger. One of the reasons they wanted to go bigger is they found that the combat and general leveling was simply too simple back in Dragon Quest One. So they wanted to expand upon that, and so this was their solution. I know this is early 80s, but the idea of having a party as a way to make combat less simple is certainly an interesting approach. But it makes sense. I actually said as much myself during the Dragon Quest One Rumination, because I mentioned how... Sorry, my phone here. I mentioned how Final Fantasy was objectively more complex of a game, not better or worse but more complex than Dragon Quest One, and one of the reasons why was because you actually had a party to manage. Um, they also allowed you to fight parties of enemies, so you could actually have enemy formations to encounter rather than simply one enemy at a time. They also increased the number of bosses by one. There's one additional boss, although interestingly enough, unlike Dragon Quest One, where the bosses are all over the place and you have to get through them to get certain items, here all of the bosses are back-to-back -back in the very end of the final dungeon. It is a straight-up boss rush, which is a Weird way of doing it, but, you know, not going to complain. They also have substantially more dungeons in this one. Uh, there's towers you can go through, and those dungeons are larger. The the overall map is also larger, and there's more to do there. There's more towns, more dungeons, more map, more, more bosses, kind of, and more equipment that you can work with. So it is, like I said, it's just straight up more. All of this makes perfect sense, but was a pain to balance. So what they did is they sat down and said, I've got an idea. I'm going to bring in the students, Nakamura. He brought in some of his programming students. He says, all right, help me, help me make this game. It'll be part of your thing. Okay, cool. But they didn't know what the hell they were doing because they were students. 
So they couldn't do anything. And, and, and speaking personally as someone who remembers his first year of programming class in college, I know exactly what that feels like. Because the, the, I had the worst programming teacher in my very first class. Just showed up and says, all right, here's your assignment. Except he didn't say, here's your assignment. What he said was nothing. There was no teaching. There was just, all right, uh, look to this page, and I need this program done by the next thing. And I'm like, and I know nothing, of course, about the specific language I was working in, which is COBOL. So I'm like, ugh. You know, I ended up like going through the book and figuring it out myself, and it was terrible. I was completely lost. So if you threw someone like me in that moment with no guidance or direction into programming a video game, yeah, I'd probably be pretty lost, too. As a result, Nakamura couldn't rely on them because they couldn't really do anything, so he just kind of did everything himself, which not only caused problems, but also led to delays. This is funny, by the way. During the development of this game, one of them gave an, I, I couldn't narrow down who, gave an offhanded comment that said, oh yeah, we'll release the game at such and such, in you know, time X. The publishers and companies all were like, okay, so the game's releasing at this point in time, and they're like, wait, what? And so it became a deadline. Now this is funny, because this game was in a rush development. They did rush to get this game out the door. But the other reason this is funny is because they missed that deadline. Because there were delays in the production of the game that I mentioned. And so they had to kind of cram the rest of the game in at the last minute. Um, this is one of the factoids that most people are aware of when it comes to Dragon Quest II. Much of the final part of the game wasn't properly playtested or designed at all. It was uh, very Mother 1 slash Earthbound 0, if you're familiar with that story. Someone made a comment just this last week. Remember when games were finished when they came out? No, I don't, because this problem goes back to the NES era. Either way, uh, I, want, I wanted to mention one other thing about Nakamoto. He had a cool idea. One of the things I've talked about many times with regards to RPG design, most game design, but especially RPG design, is at any given point in time, you know where your player's at. You know what equipment they have access to, what, what people they have access to in terms of party members, what abilities, what scores, all that stuff. That's what you use to balance the game, right? I've talked about this recently, even. So you always know where the part... I talked about this during the Albion Rumination. You always know, as a developer, where the player is at. It helps if you track that stuff as you go. And so you can kind of keep track of, like, a running marker as you're designing different sections. Okay, this is where they should be. This is where. And it, it's easier to trace back and be like, hang on, should they be at this point here? Rather than trying to figure that out from scratch. Well, they didn't keep track as they went in Dragon Quest II. So they're like, okay, well, we need to do something to figure this out. So Nakamoto came up with a program which would simulate battles of enemies, and he could plug in levels of the players and plug in levels, you know, plug in encounters of the enemies, and then run run the simulation a few times and see what happens. Kind of brilliant in its own right, and a good solution to this sort of thing. However, there were several significant flaws with this, which I'm not going to bore you with, because the only one that really matters is he forgot to take into account how many enemies can be in a formation. So he was balancing for the player being up here when actually the player was closer to down here. So if you ever wonder why this game is known as one of the, if not the, grindiest Dragon Quests, this is why. Now, in this version exactly, the Switch version I was covering, this problem has been smoothed out substantially. We actually ran into one grind wall, which was right at the end, of course. And while there are certain problems on display, which I'll talk about in a minute, overall, I could kind of see it as being, you know, reasonably, uh, reasonably smoothed out compared to the NES version, which I have actually played and beaten. 
The narrative, they were trying more when it came to narrative. They wanted there to be more of a story focus. Uh, they wanted to have something, but there was only so much they could do. So while there's cutscenes and characters, it's all still fairly basic. Something that I could compare to Final Fantasy II. You know, everyone talks about Final Fantasy II's story, but it's not that much. I mean, explain Furion's character to me in more than one sentence, for example. Same general problem. While, you know, the Prince of Canock is the bumbler and the Princess of uh, Moonbrook is female, there's not as much substance there as you would think for the way they present it. I know, I know, for the times. But I'm just trying to point out the fact that while there is more story focus, there is still not what I would consider a uh, in-depth or complex story. There is story, and there is some cool stuff, especially, there's actually some really cool moments. The destruction of Moonbrook at the beginning and the illusory Middenhall Castle are both excellent moments and very cool. It's actually especially impressive because the point is the kind of thing I don't often see when it comes to game design. I've seen it a couple times. What happens, if you'll forgive me for spoiling the heck out of this, is you get to hell. You get to the end of the game after going through the worst dungeon in the game. We'll talk about gameplay in a minute. And you make your way through, and you go to the final, final dungeon, and you go in, and it's it's Middenhall Castle. And everyone there is just acting like everything's cool, and they've all joined Hargon. Now, you might think, oh, it's a plot twist. No. It's trying to deceive the player? No. Even if you've never played a video game before and never consumed any of their fiction ever, this is your first exposure to fiction, if you've been paying even the tiniest bit of attention to the entire game, it's very clear this is false. It gets across an almost surrealistic horror vibe, which I credit to Cloyder for that phrase, because it, 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 it is. It is effectively a horror scene. You get to the end, and it's creepy, and it's like... You, everything's bright and green and happy and shiny, and it's just... This is the final dungeon? And you talk to everyone like, what the heck is going on? And the treasure chests are empty, even though you're invited to loot them. And you can rest the night. That's cool. You can't really buy much of significance. And you can't use the portal anymore, because that doesn't connect to anything. What the heck is going on? And, of course, then you break the illusion. <laughs> Lol. And, you know, go do the final thing. And that's cool. It's a good moment. It's a legitimately cool moment. So it's not like the increased story focus is not going to miss. Which is good, because this game sucks. <sighs> now. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Um, so here's the thing. I, I tore this game to shreds in the review. I, it actually only ended up with a net negative 8 only. Listen to me. But that still makes it one of my worst reviewed games. Video game. I'm saying that wrong. On the gameplay axis, it's one of the worst reviewed games I've ever covered. And I stand by that. There's only, I think, three games worse. I don't know. You can, you can check the site. But there's only a few that are worse than this. And again, I stand by that firmly. Because where do I begin? So let's start with the good. The intro, gameplay-wise, is actually pretty good. It It's effectively Dragon Quest 1 again, in terms of the overall design. Here's where you can go. It's just this, this area. You're given hints to go here and here. And wherever you go first, you will find an escalating... Like, it's that ex expedition gameplay I talked about last time. Where you, you go out, and then you go out a little bit further, and you go out a little bit further. And it goes even at a more rapid pace than last time. Okay, and we get this item here, and we get this item here, and we go around. We have a clear, defined plot. Multiple NPCs will not only point you to where you should go, but to other people who will also point you to where you should go. And the whole thing lines up rather smoothly. There's a good design to it. 
And then you get, there's a very hard barrier you cannot progress through until you get your second party member. You do, you go through it, and then the same kind of thing happens again. Then the game falls apart massively. What this game does is it makes a mistake many open world games do. Here's the entire world. Now, you can go anywhere and do anything. However, you're supposed to do it in a specific linear order, and it is designed to be done in a specific linear order. You remember I mentioned that whole program from earlier? Well, one of the things they didn't think about when they were designing, and this is, this is not me making this up, they have admitted to this in an interview, is that they forgot that with the ship you can go everywhere. The moment you get the ship, that's the freedom point. I've talked about the freedom point in game design before. It's pretty much the moment at which you can go and do whatever in whatever order. Not every game has a freedom point, but most RPGs do, and it's usually the acquisition of an airship, for example. Or the last airship, in a, in, depending on the game, right? Like in FF3, it's when you get the Invincible. Anyways, so the freedom point is when you get the ship. But they didn't think about that. It didn't even occur to them. So you're supposed to do things in a certain order, but there's nothing directing or guiding you in that order. Instead, you just kind of roam, and the, the sign that you're in the wrong area is that you die. Again, that's a much more horrible thing in, in the original NES version than this version, which has things like quick saves and convenience features, such as being able to actually teleport to other towns, rather than just a recall back, right? So, a number of open-world games make this mistake. They don't uh, give any kind of information or direction. It's basically just a trial and error. And that's a good segue into the worst dungeon in the game. Now, most of the dungeons in this game are harmless. This is this is nowhere near as bad as the FF2 dungeon design, which is some of the worst game dungeon design I've ever seen in gaming. But you get to the Road to Rome, or Renderac, in this version. And it's just... It's a huge dungeon. Huge. It is the largest dungeon in the game. It is effectively the final dungeon, even if there is actually a dungeon after it. And there's a couple of chests which are worthwhile in there. Most of the enemies in there are irritating... And not particularly difficult, but like to do things like hit you in multiple AoE attacks or instantly kill you. Although that gets worse in a minute. And it's a trial and error dungeon. There's at least two examples of that I can tell you right off the top of my head. But there's actually three. The very first room is there are seven separate paths you can go. Seven. Pick one. Okay, well that was the wrong path. So go back. Okay, pick a new one. Okay, pick a new one. Okay, pick a new one. One of those seven is the correct path. That then leads you to three options, one of which is the correct path. If you go the wrong way, you reset back to where you started. Not the, all the way to the beginning of the dungeon, in, in the game's credit, but back to the room. Later on, there's a section where there's uh, holes in the ground. Actually, a large chunk of the dungeon has holes in the ground. Nothing indicates they're there. You just have to walk there and make it fall. Now, in the game's credit... Once a hole is made, it stays there, so you know where it is. But my point is, what this means is, in order to get through a specific room, you go through, fall, go back up, go through, fall, go over, go back up, go fall. And each one of these trips takes longer because you're getting further through the dungeon. And the encounter rate is insanely high. Talk about that in a second. And so you are fighting nonstop waves of mobs as you're slogging through this. It is one of the most purest forms of padding I've seen in a while, only surpassed by the very next section, which is, you're at an area, go left or right. Oh, you went the wrong way, which is left, I'll tell you right now. Going left, oh, wrong way, back to the beginning. And it does that trick again for an entire section. I think there's like 15 separate choices of pick the right way. 
oh, you picked the wrong way. Go back to the beginning. Just, that's it. That's all there is to it. <laughs> this is ignoring the optional areas where you get the effectively best sword of the game and the best armor in the game, which are in this dungeon, because of course they are. The final dungeon, the actual final dungeon, doesn't impress either, because that's just a, a bunch of damage tiles and a couple of rooms. Oh, and a bunch of bosses in a row. But, hang on. I said I would talk about the encounter rate. Now, I, this is speaking specifically of the Switch version, but the encounter rate in the Switch version is through the damned roof. This was, uh, I'd say, about triple the number of encounters that happened in the first game. Now, I want to comment on that, because I only ran into one grind wall in Dragon Quest II, whereas I ran into two in Dragon Quest I, because Dragon Quest I didn't have this many encounters, and you already see where I'm going with this. They designed it in Dragon Quest I so that you had to run around in a circle. Their solution for that in Dragon Quest II was to just increase the encounter rate. If you don't understand why this is a problem, they could have increased the encounter rate, increased the gain per encounter, or reduced the requirement to level. All of these things are things that are very, very easy to fix. And any base-level RPG designer could tell you about the tables that go along with these kind of figures. But instead, they decided to just up the encounter rate, which increases the padding, which makes sense, because this is one of the shortest Dragon Quest games. I'd say probably the second shortest overall. Because there's just not that much to do, really, relatively speaking. Oh, don't mistake me, there's some decent stuff here. But that encounter rate just makes the whole game turn into a blur after a certain point, because you will blaze through these fights. Oftentimes only taking a few seconds, and then just mulch, 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 right? Until you get to the grind point, which I suppose I should talk about hell, a.k.a. Renderak. Renderak, excuse me, Renderak. Render, get it? You know, it's just destroying everything. Renderak is hell. This is when the game design just becomes so terrible that I, I, I actively started to despise it. Up until this point, up until the road, okay, you know, it's decent, I'm with it. The moment I hit the road, the game just started punching me in the balls, and then once my balls were gone, it found a new pair and taped them to me so it could punch me again. That probably sounds like hyperbole, and that's because it is. But I want to just run you through a couple of things they do here. First of all, all of the enemies in there are monstrously difficult. There is actually a full heal res save point, which is in the middle of that zone. This is what we call a band-aid over a broken leg kind of a thing. Because while that makes it better, it doesn't make it good. What it does is gives you the ability to get there and then stay there because that's the leveling spot. That's the best experience in the game. So you want to run around there, barely surviving most of the fights, riding the red line. We've talked about the different color lines before. Uh, until you get down to the orange line, until it gets to the yellow line. And actually, you want to keep going until it's the green line because you want to be about 40-ish before you actually go to the last dungeon because the final five bosses are all stat walls from hell. I'll get to that in a second. So that sucks. All of that sucks. Hang on, I got another one for you, though. <laughs> this is a funny one. Because there are two separate enemies there that have a spell, or an ability. It's actually a separate ability. Uh, I forget what it's called in this version, but it's Sacrifice and uh, Thwack, I believe. Sacrifice just kills themselves to wipe out all non-boss encounters on the opposite side of the field. And wouldn't you know it, the three party members you're playing as are not bosses, so it just kills you. There's nothing you can do about it. The other spell, Thwack, is an AoE spell, hits all three of you, and it has a chance, each one, it's a different roll, to 
kill you. Nothing you can do about it. More levels supposedly, and I have to add an asterisk to this, increase your resistance to it, but that's it. Anytime a game can just kill you straight up and there's nothing you can do about it, and the answer is just shrug, is not usually a good starting point for what is effectively the end zone of a game. So you're supposed to just sit there and grind for a while. Then you go to the illusion sequence, which was very cool. I still stand by that. It's a cool sequence. Then you go to the final dungeon, which is boring and dumb. Then you fight the final five bosses. The first boss hits twice per round and hits like a truck. The second boss has tons of spells. The third boss is both. Now, in the original version, there is apparently a way to trick the game into letting them stay dead. But if you, like, reset, save, and come back to it, or, or, like, leave the zone or whatever, I forget the specifics, please forgive me. They don't, they respawn. The bosses come back. You are intended by design in the original version to fight all five bosses in one final gauntlet. In this version, thankfully, that's not true. A boss stays dead once you kill it, which is good, because I actually did have to go and recoup more than once during that final gauntlet. The fourth boss is just there to waste your time and resources. The fifth boss is bullcrap. The fifth boss, spoilers, is... is So let's talk narrative for a second. Um, I used Return of the Jedi earlier, so let's use that again as an analogy. I want you to imagine that they get to the final throne room and Luke is there and he defeats Palpatine and Palpatine's like, ah, uh, uh, and he falls over dead. But then in the, in the shadows, this other person you've never heard of or seen before just walks out and his name's uh, Darth Destructo, whatever. And Darth Destructo walks out and is like, now I will defeat you. And then he's the actual final fight of Star Wars, the original trilogy. This is known in TV trope circles as the giant space flea from nowhere, and it's called that because that's basically what it is. Hey, I'm here! And it's aggravating, for the reasons I just elucidated upon. Just really, really picture Return of the Jedi if that actually happened, and that's why we get so upset about this kind of concept. It's just, hi! Now, what's funny is in the original NES version, there was exactly one hint that Malroth existed there was an item, which is required to beat the game, called the Eye of Malroth. That's it. In this version, there are several more hints. It's like five or six hints that, that give the idea that there is this greater entity that he's worshipping or working for and blah, blah, blah. But even in this version, there is nothing that really builds up or establishes the idea of the final boss. He really does just kind of show up like, hi, I'm here, and I'm bullcrap because he is RNG. Just, just RNG. There's just RNG. He can reduce all your defense. That's a good thing for him to do. Increase his defense. Hit your entire party for about a hundred. Yes, really. Uh, unless you have certain equipment which can help mitigate that down to a mere fifty. By the way, for perspective, my main character, the main melee guy, which is the big beefy guy, had about a hundred and seventy HP at this point, and that's in the forties. He can hit you twice, which will pretty much kill anyone but the big beefy dude. Um, I think that might actually be it. Oh, in the original version, he had something called Full Heal. Now, what does Full Heal do? And he can just do it. He can just cast that. Because he chooses to. Now, in this version, I don't know about the NES version's exact tables, but in this version, let me explain something really quick. Final Fantasy IV invented something. 
Uh, it's effectively the gambit system. What it is, is it's a series of if-thens that determine what a monster does at any given point in time based on uh, triggers, right? Fairly simple scripting. But Final Fantasy IV kind of invented that. I, I know they didn't literally invent it, but it was the first time it really became a popular thing, and it then spread to most RPGs thereafter. That's important, though, because before then, in FF1 through 3 and Dragon Quest 1 and 2, they'd used another method, which is just a table. Instead of a script that you can you know, work around or, ta- or try to have some tactics involved, instead, they have X actions they can take, and every time their turn comes up, they roll a dice. And the dice determines what action they take, and that's kind of it. There are a few specific exceptions where, like, you know, if they're a low health, they have a higher chance to do this, that kind of a thing. But for the most part, it is pure random. So he has just a random chance to screw you over in ways that you have nothing you can really do about. I had to go leave. This took an extra hour of my life away to do this. I'm actually getting less sleep tonight because I had to go and spend an extra hour of my life defeating this guy, by which I mean going back through the cave, getting the optional armor and weapon, leveling even more, and then coming back to do the whole rigmarole again with less mana than last time, because mana-restoring items? What are those? Yeah, I know, there's prayer rings, but mine broke. So, when I beat him, it was pure RNG. And I want to stress this. There's no accomplishment there. There's no achievement I don't feel good about that. The boss threw the fight, effectively. Seven separate times. I counted seven separate times he did something that... Basically, his turn action could have killed me and wiped me. But instead, he did something like Kasapt again, or buffed himself again. And and so, I was able to keep going. When we got... Anybody who watched the stream knows this. When we got to the final few rounds there, I was out of mana, and one of my party members, Kanok, of course, was dead. And I was just like, well, there's nothing else for it. I'm just going to attack. Because I can't do anything other than attack now. And he just kept doing bad things over and over and then died. That's not good boss design. That's not good anything design. This is why I say this is not a good game. Because it's actually a good game, then it becomes kind of a boring game, and then it becomes a terrible game. Which is a path many RPGs follow. Most RPGs have better intros than outros. And this RPG has a terrible outro. But I do want to comment on one last thing. So, I'm going to go ahead and throw up a spoiler warning here. And not for this game. For Dragon Quest Builders 2. If you have not played... Dragon Quest Builders 2. If you are interested in remaining spoiler-free from that game, this is your moment to turn up. I have nothing else to say about Dragon Quest 2, okay? So you can, you can chop it off, you're gun, you're good, have a good day, everything's cool, cool. But I'm going to spoil the hell out of Dragon Quest Builders 2, so if you do not wish those spoilers, this is me being nice and calm and giving you tons of time to lunge for the laptop or hit the play button on your, your, uh, your headphones or whatever to pause me. Okay, I think that's plenty of warning. Dragon Quest Builders 2 is a... Uh, direct sequel to Dragon Quest 2. This is important because Dragon Quest Builders 1 was an Elseworlds. It was a what-if story based on Dragon Quest 1. But Dragon Quest Builders 2 is directly following the events of Dragon Quest 2. You know, the the, the very, very, very few monsters that remain that are loyal to Malro... Uh, not Malro, excuse me, to Hargon, of which there's like eight. It's, it's the, the ones on the boat. That's it. And then they go off, and then they, they enter this well, spoilers. Three, two, one, last chance. 
they enter the illusionary world. The reason I find this whole thing fascinating is not only does this really flesh out Hargon and the characters and the world, and we find little tidbits about how Moonbrook is doing okay, you know, they're starting to restore and all that fun stuff, but what I find most fascinating about this is this is an excellent creative challenge from both a gameplay and a story perspective. I've talked before about the idea that little things get built up and, and used as ground uh, ground launching points for story ideas in the future. Star Wars is a great example of that. Star Trek is a great example of that. Dragon Quest, Final Fantasy. Any, any long-standing series will see that. And I've talked about that many times. As my TOS and Enterprise ruminations start going live over the next two years, you'll see a lot of that as well. Here... What we see, though, is kind of the inverse of that, because what we have here is a specific creative challenge. Look at this old character from this old game. Now, they had no characterization. Their characterization was, they're evil. Make something of that. Flesh that out into something more fully developed. And that's what they did in Dragon Quest Builders 2. They looked at Hargon and they're like, okay, well... He's got the fourth kingdom, fourth kingdom headcanon confirmed, and he's got this whole idea of this illusion that he puts up so that they can be caught in the final dungeon. What if his whole shtick is illusions? And so they flesh that out to the point where Hargon is actually a massive, powerful illusionist who builds this whole illusionary world to try and use it as a way to re resurrect not only himself, but Malroth, and accomplish his goal of destroying this also beautifully ties in with the concept of Dragon Quest Builders, too, because building is then seen as a false uh, false dichotomy opposite to creating, or excuse me, opposite to destroying. And that's one of the big narrative points is Dragon Quest Builders, too. This is why this is super spoilers. The, the big thematic point, I should say, is that destruction and building aren't actually opposites. They're just two concepts that are closely related to each other. You, you break something down to make something new, to break something down to make something new, right? And so, you know, the two learning to live in harmony is kind of the point of DQB2, and all of that is built off of one random horror scene in a NES game from 25 years ago. That is a beautiful and wonderful creative challenge, and I love what they did with that. It can also be a gameplay thing, too. You know, take a basic character and turn them into an interesting boss fight, which they also did in this case. Malroth in this case. How do you make Malroth an interesting boss fight? Which they did. Credit to them. And it's the same idea, because you have nothing to build off of other than the most bare bones of ideas. And you just find yourself thinking, okay, well, um, they have red eyes. Okay, so I'm, here, I'll do it right now. I'm looking at the, the cover of Dragon Warrior 1, right? So, okay. There's a dragon. Um... Its wings look like they're actually made of fire. So why don't we make it so that this dragon is partially elemental and thus like leaves flame trails on the ground as it goes, which kind of serves as an area denial mechanic. And it's got red eyes too, but honestly, I think that should be kind of indicative of what it can see. Like maybe it can't see through certain things. So maybe you can actually use the flame to hide from the dragon temporarily to be able to get it in the tail or the back in order to attack it without being attacked full frontal. You know, with with the, the claws and the, the teeth and all that fun stuff. And that's the kind of creative challenge I'm talking about. Taking almost nothing and trying to build something out of it. Which is very Dragon Quest, if you think about it. I love what they did with that connection. I love how they took those minor little tidbits and fleshed them out so much in DQB2. 
to the point where it's awesome. And because of the fact that it's a direct sequel, we also know that of the various trilogies of the Dragon Quest series, this is the end of this one. Like, 3 happens before this, and DQB2 has a happily ever after as well. So that means this is actually a happily ever after. I suppose that's all I've got. I, uh, I really hope 3 is a better game. We'll be starting that one tomorrow. <laughs> Either way, I do hope you've enjoyed my thoughts as always. See you next time. Thank <laughs> you.